One of the things that makes us unique as a species is our language. Humans speak in languages that can embody concepts, construct and contain narratives, communicate across time and space. And yet, just as language unites us, it also divides us. There are over 6,000 languages in existence, at least 1,000 of which have a written form. We live this beautiful diversity every day on the streets of India. And there is great art created in all these languages, the best of which combines local flavor with a universal essence, which anyone from anywhere could relate to if they could understand the language. This multiplicity of languages is beautiful, but presents one problem. As readers, how can we understand the wonders of other languages? We rely on translation. And that is why, if language is essential and writing is important, then translation matters. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Scene and the Unseen. My subject today is the art of translation and my guest is Arunava Sinha, who is no stranger to lovers of Bengali literature. Arunava has translated more than 50 books from Bengali to English and has introduced authors such as Asha Purna Devi, Shankar, Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay, Sharadandu Bandopadhyay, Sunil Gangopadhyay, Bono Fool, Buddha Dev Bose, Banuranjan Vyapari and Nobarun Bhattacharya to a wider English reading audience. I'm delighted that he's agreed to join me for a conversation today. But before we begin, let's take a quick commercial break. If you enjoy listening to The Scene and the Unseen, you can play a part in keeping the show alive. The Scene and the Unseen has been a labor of love for me. I've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations, expanding my brain and my universe, and hopefully yours as well. But while the work has been its own reward, I don't actually make much money off the show. Although The Seen and the Unseen has great numbers, advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcasts. I do many, many hours of deep research for each episode, besides all the logistics of producing the show myself. Scheduling guests, booking studios, paying technicians, the travel and so on. So well, I'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going and that involves you. My proposition for you is this. For every episode of The Seen and the Unseen that you enjoy, buy me a cup of coffee or even a lavish lunch, whatever you feel it's worth. You can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in slash support and contributing an amount of your choice. This is not a subscription. The Seen and the Unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in. This is just a gesture of appreciation. Help keep this thing going. Seenunseen.in slash support. Urnava, welcome to The Scene and the Unseen. Thank you, Amit. Thank you for having me here. So, you know, before we sort of get to your fascinating uh, career, I remember you. I remember your byline from like a long, long time ago, mainly as a journalist. Then I gradually became aware of your remarkable career and all these books. And I'm, of course, half Bengali. And, yeah. you know, my father reads all your books and uh, talks about you a lot. So I think he'll be delighted that you're finally on my show. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, uh, you know, where did you grow up? What was your education? Yeah. So I was born in Calcutta and I grew up there. Well, I... Technically, I spent the first four years of my life in Bombay, but very faint memories of that period. I went to school in Calcutta, and then, like all um, or most Bengali boys of my generation, I was prepping for a, you know, you either go into medicine or you go into engineering. And I was prepping for engineering. 
I actually got in, surprising even myself. <laughs> I got into Jadavpur University and I joined electrical engineering. It took about three weeks to realize that this was not for me, and also that you know there was no sense in wasting what could be the best or some of the best years of your life studying something that you didn't want to. So I contrived to fail enough papers and create and burn my boats as it were, so that there was no looking back. I couldn't go back and start again. And I uh, started afresh the next year with English literature in the same university on the same campus. So it was a complete turn as far as I, I imagine that my life took a completely different turn. Um, while I was studying English literature, the whole idea was then I was fairly set on being an academic. So you know, BA, MA, then you go for back then you had to do uh, an MPhil, and then you try to go abroad for a PhD. And so that was the that was the set path. But we used to bring out a college magazine, you know, in the old cyclo style format. And immediately after my BA final exams, uh, a job opportunity opened up in a youth magazine in Calcutta, which I took. And six months, or not even six months, within three months of that, I was sure that that was what I wanted to do. So there went the academic track completely. I, I enrolled for my MA, didn't go through with it after the first year. And just became a journalist, and that too, a sort of entrepreneurial journalist in the sense that it was our own magazine. After we managed to run that to the ground in about two years, <laughs> we started a city magazine, and that was funded by what you would today call a angel investor, and that did quite well. We actually had a circulation of about. Twenty thousand. Wow, that's crazy! And yeah, a monthly magazine, and we even pioneered this whole business of local listings, paid local listings. You know, which became the rage much later. Uh, so it was good, but we couldn't manage the finances well enough. So four years later, the angel investor who had since then handed over to another one, they said, "Sorry, we were out of." Cash. What was this called? It was called Calcutta Skyline. Okay, but interestingly, it was also where the seeds of my. A future which I had no idea about at that stage as a translator was sown because we used to translate one short story from Bengali every month for every issue, and I did several of those translations, and also sort of spearheaded that whole uh, initiative, roping in others to translate as well. So then I worked for a little bit longer in Calcutta, and then moved to Delhi as, believe it or not, a business journalist with having absolutely zero credentials, <laughs> <laughs> but except writing. But I worked for Business Today for eight years, which became a management magazine in the nineties. So it was interesting because you didn't have to know the nuts and bolts of what normally went into a business magazine. And doing a management-oriented magazine meant that you had to read enormously and assimilate enormously, and then write it in a way that would be both engaging and uh, lucid. Then in two uh, thousand, you know, even then we were writing about the net a good deal because technology was very much part of management. And then in two thousand, when the internet media opened up in India, so I decided that I was going to move in there. So I sort of walked into the indya dot com offices and I said, you know, this is where I'm going to work. And they said, who the hell are you? So I said, it doesn't matter how many people do you have walking in to say that they want to work for you. So you know, just don't look gift houses in the mouth. I've been a journalist, and just take my word for it. So they did actually, and I moved to Bangalore from Delhi. And so yeah, I'd moved to Delhi before that from Calcutta for Business Today, and then on to Bangalore for two years. Then, uh, as usual, with my Midas touch, India dot com folded after two years. So then I moved back to Delhi with India Times. And then it was in the internet for um, a long time after that, for about 
12 years being a journalist and then I moved on to being a product manager building new products which I did for a startup called Ibibo and then for ndtv.com as well so yeah this is the, my my life as a journalist wow that's uh, that's quite an arc and what kind of struck me when you were talking about your decision in college to fail your engineering yeah. exams was when you said that you decided immediately that you don't want to waste the best years of your life yeah. and the thought that struck me was that that is an enormous amount of maturity for a fresher undergrad because i remember at that age my thinking was not at all as clear about things and um, and then you said you went on to do english lit so i'm guessing that a lot of this must have been driven by a love for books so what kind of books did you read did you read in both english and bengali you know what was the shaping of your literary taste yeah so i used to read exclusively in bengali till the age of about 8 i started reading quite early by about 5 i was reading and i was reading bangla till 8 when i discovered till 7 when i discovered enid blyton and then i did this sort of overnight shift to reading english books and so yeah um also school life uh, i think i devoured everything there was for our age group so starting with enid blyton and then um, there were other very interesting school series around that time you know there was a lovely one by elinor m brendayer called the shale school which was quite exotic because that school was not even located anywhere fixed they would move around different european uh, <laughs> countries and back then in the 1970s european countries was just a concept i mean you know we had no idea what it actually meant but the school was in switzerland today and in germany tomorrow and it was a girls school so it there was this you know other sort of undercurrent of fascination also because of the fact that these were clearly teenage girls although completely antiseptic but uh, you know there were two levels of attraction as it were as one grew older so there was those and then there was some teenage science fiction a series called tom swift which i remember reading a lot of and then moving very quickly on to trash so alistair maclean which is not trash really and desmond bagley and then anything on the shelves at home and i read indiscriminately like i think everybody, everybody who loves everybody reading. so you picked one book and then you picked the next book and you picked the next book so with the result that i was reading camus the outsider followed by harold robbins carpet bagger <laughs> followed by the old man in the sea which i hated at that point Uh, you still hate it i yeah i'm ambivalent about old man is too i'm ambivalent about uh, yeah, i mean great writing but too much machismo for me <laughs> and then summer and mom whom i really couldn't stand uh, i don't know and and unfortunately i think some of these early impressions are very hard to undo so even if it turns out later that no 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 these are good people to read you are just somehow you know it's baked into you that i don't like summerson mom and that's it but yeah and woodhouse i said and woodhouse i think the biggest value of reading woodhouse was becoming sensitive about language that woodhouse you almost read purely at the level of language, the language yeah that's yeah. that's the whole point the yeah. incidents didn't matter at all right so yeah so quite a lot of reading bangla i did not read too much at that point but we had to study it in school and then i found it very difficult to write it was proving to be a very tall order so my uncle my father's elder cousin who himself is a poet he put me through my paces of writing by making me summarize the our textbooks and that in some mysterious way got me into a both reading and writing bangla again at a more uh, mature level my spelling by bangla spelling became almost perfect which is unbelievable but i realized that by the the act of writing fixes your spelling um and i started reading a good deal in bangla as well starting mind you with trash 
they were i still remember this one particular book which was called hotta himel hawa <laughs> which literally is you know murder cold wind and it there was this very clear extramarital affair that was going on between the wife of a, an industrialist and her sarod instructor and it was full of these um, very elegant ways of describing physical relationships you know so much so that for the longest time i always used to think that a kiss work could only be described as imprinting the mark of your lips on another's <laughs> i mean i did not know any other way of putting it so yeah um but I, yeah i read i read a lot in both languages that is true no and this is making me really nostalgic because obviously uh, you know there are certain authors and certain sort of um, canons which are very familiar to indians growing up yeah. in the 70s yeah. 80s yeah. 90s i don't think somerset mom would have been read so much outside yeah. the country That's necessarily right. in the yeah. west yeah. but over here and also the sort of the deification of woodhouse and yes. the pedestal that he is quite correctly put on is uh, uh, sort of strikes a chord did you also want to be a writer no i never actually wanted to be a writer even though you were a journalist and you did write a lot yeah even so i mean uh, yeah i've never wanted to be a, to write and i'm full of admiration for people who can write books and i don't think i'm capable of actually finishing writing a complete book well wow, that's that, that's very interesting so you know so you you had translated these couple of stories for the yes. uh, magazine when you were young yes. and then you come back to translation more than yeah, a decade so what and happened a half was later. that just before i saw so the story is that just before i left calcutta this was in 1992 shankar who some of whose stories i had translated for the magazine one actually he got in touch with me and he said that he wanted an english translation of chorangi and uh, he said that it was for a french publisher who wanted to read an english version before taking the decision to translate it into french and back then mind you 92 so i don't think english language publishing in the new wave had started yet penguin in had sense, come penguin may have just set up with anando hmm. no they had i think by the late 80s they were already publishing okay. uh, shunil ganguly and others i think hmm. but yeah they were the only ones and there was no sense that you know you could actually translate for being published the concept didn't exist so i translated it for him in a furious i did it in about a month and a half uh, you know staying back in the office late at night after work and bashing it out on the office computer and then taking printouts on those old accordion folded you know on dot matrix printers on those accordion folded pages and then before leaving delhi uh, leaving calcutta for delhi i handed him the whole potha as it was here's your novel in english was it the only copy the, that you handed it was the only copy wow it was the only copy and um, I gave it to him. No, but I kept a copy on a five and a half inch floppy disk, uh -huh. which was the disk drive back then, mm -hmm. a Word Star document. Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. those thin yeah. brown yeah. thingies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I carried that with me under the impression that five and a half inch floppies were going to live forever and <laughs> so on, and that I had a digital copy. So what me worry? And then th there was no word from him and nothing. Occasionally, you know, when I was when you had this spiritual crisis at work, I would toy with the idea of let me translate a novel. But of course, I never got beyond a line or two. Cut to two thousand and six. Now two thousand and six, I am already at that age where I am about to have a full blown midlife crisis. So red Ferrari or something equally weird is going to happen. I know it. I know that it's staring <laughs> me in the face at that point. 
when I get a call from Dia Kaur at Penguin, whom I because all Calcutta people you know know one another somehow. <laughs> it's a village. So she called and she said, "Did you ever translate Chorangi?" And I said, "Wow, this is a true blast from the past. How did this come to you?" So she said, "You know, we want to publish a translation, and we got in touch with the writer. And Shankar said, 'Look, there is a translation, but I don't remember who did it. But I have the uh, printout.'" So he sent it to us, and I found your name on it. So luckily, I put my name on the on the copy smart that I move. Ended, I yeah. think your floppy disk by now would have disappeared. Yeah, so there's a story behind that as well. So and she says, so we'd love to publish it. So I said, wow, that's fantastic. And what do I have to do? So she said, do you want to take another look at the text? I said, okay, sure. And then I said, I don't need a printout. I have my floppy disk. So I took my <laughs> floppy disk, which had strangely enough survived several house moves and city moves and so on. So I took it to Nehru Place and I said, uh, "Can you get the data out of this one?" But after two days, even they threw their <laughs> hands up and said, "No, we are not able to." So I took that printout and I gave it to a professional typist and I said, "Now you type it all out for me, French." Because by that time, of course, we moved mm. to a different platform. We've got Microsoft Word, so he typed it all out for me and then I sort of lightly edited it a bit, and then that was it. They published it. That was a very unexpected. Way of, and was it successful? How it was, did people react? It was extreme. It, it's probably been my most successful book hmm. in the sense of sales in India. Yeah, it was extremely successful. And funnily, or not, I signed away the copyright and all monetary considerations at the time I translated it for the princely sum. Actually, not princely. It was quite a decent amount back then of six thousand rupees, which hmm. was twice my monthly salary in the, the late eighties. In the in ninety two. Huh, so that's that, not bad. Yeah, no, that was two x of my monthly salary. Yeah. I was two and three thousand rupees a month. Mm. So I was very pleased. Six thousand rupees, just as I'm moving cities, was a mm. windfall to me. Mm. But and I had no idea how publishing worked, how copyrights worked, and so on. So eventually, it turned out that I made absolutely no money from the sales and from the sales abroad. But you know, it started me off on something on what's become my life. So I have. But is it fair to say that you do what you do because of the love of it? The money is a nice bonus. Yeah. But it's it's the work is yeah. it's on reward. Yeah, the That's money right. is a nice bonus and it helps holidays and other expenses. You can't build your life around your earnings from translations. So yeah, it's not primarily the money, but it isn't for. I mean, I've met many translators around the world, and even the ones who earn well don't do it for the money or primarily for the money. I was reading uh, Edith Grossman's book mm-hmm. Why Translation Matters, and there's a quote from it. It was struck me, uh, and uh, she writes, uh, "Quote: Translation is a strange craft, generally appreciated by writers, with a few glaring exceptions, like Milan Kundera, mm-hmm. whose attack on his French translator was so virulent it achieved a kind of uh, sour kind of notoriety. Undervalued by publishers, translators' fees tend to be so low that agents generally are not interested in representing them." Trivialized by the academic world, there are still promotion and tenure committees that do not consider translations to be serious publications and practically ignored by reviewers. Astonishingly, it is still possible to find reviews that do not even mention the translator's name, let alone discuss the quality of the translation. It is an occupation that many critics agree is impossible at best, a betrayal at worst, and on the average, probably not much more than the accumulated result of a diligent, even slavish. Familiarity with dictionaries, although bringing a text over into another language has a long and glorious history. A stop quote. So this brings me to the question: Why on earth did you become a translator? Yeah, so you know it, it's a great question because I don't know. And again, <laughs> I've asked others how, why, and how, and all of them have the same answer: We don't know. 
there's some button somewhere, you know, that makes you... I think it's the instinct of amateur singer who's quite good as a singer, but will never make it as a um, top-class singer. So what do you do when you hear anything? You start humming it, right? And you want to sing it to perfection because you want to recreate that same feeling that you had when you heard the original. I think it's an instinct like that. So that's what makes you do it. But I can tell you this, it's a drug. You start and you cannot stop. You really cannot stop. You, I mean, I'm at the point where if I finish like the, like Trollope. Hmm. So like Trollope, I think it was Trollope. I, if I finish a translation at 6.15 in the evening, I will start a new one at 6.25. I kid you not. It is really like that. Because finishing a translation is such a feeling of the end of the world that the only way you can survive is by starting the next one. So it is a drug. And I think there's a certain amount of ego involved. Because, you know, you feel... Although anyone, not too many people might know that, hey, so many thousands of people would not have read this book had I not translated it. And if you come to think of it, if translators go on strike around the world, world literature is going to collapse. Publishing is going to collapse. So it's incredible that, that something that is so important a part of the literary system is actually not acknowledged for, I think, what it achieves. Or the people behind it are not acknowledged to the extent, perhaps, that they should. But having said that, I don't think that that's a problem because, you know, at the end of the day, there are exceptions, I'm sure, but most translators don't do it for to be considered um, important people. And also, I would guess that when you translate something, you are, of course, one, you're driven by the book that you're translating is something that you love and you want to share it with everyone, but also by the creative urge. Because, you know, typically the non-reader would assume that translation is nothing than, you know, you can mm. take a dictionary and one day AI will do it and mm. you just mm. transcribe all the words. But it's actually not that. And I'm reminded of, uh, you know, Gregory Rabasa, who was mm. Marquez's mm. You know, famous translator, while, you know, after he translated the book was asked this bizarre question by this interviewer on, do you know enough Spanish to be able to translate the work. And Rabasa's incredible response was that the question is not whether I know enough Spanish, the question is whether I know enough English, you know, thereby indicating that, you know, it's almost like creating an entirely new work. You know, another famous translator, Herbert Bates, who translated Odyssey earlier, of course, which is, uh, you know, Emily Wilson's uh, latest translation is mm. uh, quite mind-blowing. But Bates said once said about translation, and this is a very sexist remark, but it was made many, many decades earlier, where he said that um, a translation can be uh, like a wife. If she's beautiful, she won't be faithful. If she's faithful, she won't be beautiful, which is incredibly sexist, but there is something to that also. So is this a trade-off that you encounter while translating that, you know, on the one hand, you want to get everything right and, uh, you know, not change too much. But on the other hand, your true fealty, your true loyalty is to the essence of what is what the author is trying to convey. So how has your response to this evolved? Like, was this something that you thought about consciously reading up what others said on it especially while doing your first translation or did you sort of discover your own thinking on it as you went along yeah it's the latter when I did my first translation I had no idea of what thoughts had gone into the process especially because remember those days these books were not available the way they are now and there was no internet so there was no way really of reading up and if at all you went to the library and read you only read things like Walter Benjamin's famous essay and so on which was delightful but completely useless when it came to actually translating into a translation strategy um, so yeah my first and I realized when I look back now at my earlier work that I was very much focused on bringing the words over into the new language and very often that led to certain angularities one of a British critic described my translation of Chorungi as 
fruity and spicy. And I think it was a very kind way of saying that it was not English. It had all these, you know, uh, exotic equatorial flavors as it were, from a different land. But in retrospect, I wonder if that's necessarily a bad thing either. So, you know, the real battle is not about fealty and beauty because there's no conflict between them. The real battle which you're always fighting and, and negotiating in your head is, let's say I'm translating from Bangla, not why let's say I am translating from Bangla to English. So is my English going to bring Bangla into it or is the Bangla lit text going to become an English text? That is the real battle, you know. So the point is that, you know, after translation, will it then slip so easily into the stream of English or literatures written in the English language that you no longer think of its origins? It now belongs to all the books that have been written in English. And that's a perfectly fine strategy to go with. If in the process of doing that, you may have to do, you know, um, adopt certain tactics where you are saying that I will not make the reader stumble on anything when they're reading it in English because, hey, the reader did not stumble on the original. So my attempt is to be faithful to the experience of the reader and the experience of the reader in terms of the ease with which he can he or she they can navigate the text. For example, if I am reading the original text with a sense of, I understand this, I get this, should I make the reader interrogate the text when it goes into a new language because I am insistent on keeping some of the flavors and material and words from the original language? Or I can say that, no, it's not an English text. It is a text which has been rendered into English, but... It belongs to another language. And therefore, I don't want you to read it as though it is part of the English canon. It is not. Remember always that it is a Bangla text or a, or a text in a language that you are not familiar with. Therefore, you will encounter unfamiliarities the way you might not if you were reading a text written in English. And that is correct. That is the right approach because the reader of the Bangla text is not the reader of the English text. So why should I assume that two readers so far separated in space and time should have exactly the same kind of a response or that the effect should be the same on both of you. And there is no one answer to this question. You know, it's a question that we bat around in our heads and it's a question that I encounter continuously in the in the translation classes that I teach at Ashoka University. And I just eventually tell everybody that you have to come to your own conclusion. Neither answer is right or wrong. That is why you can have multiple translations of the same text and each may have a different objective. Gayatri Chakravati Spivak's translations of Mohashad Adebi, for example, is faithful to all the academic aspects of the original text, which she wants to identify and then carry across to the reader. So these academic aspects of the original text are not necessarily what Mahasheta Devi intended when she was writing. But for an academic reader, for a reader who's reading it with a particular objective, they're crucial. And if you can get those aspects that you will respond to academically, uh, cerebrally from the original text, then you must do the same thing from the English text. Absolutely right. She's Her motive is clearly enunciated in the extended introduction that she writes. So you know where she's coming from. Someone else might say, no, I just want to read it for, translate it for someone who is casually picking up a copy of the book and just wants to read it and is not interested in the academic ramification. So that'll lead to a different kind of translation. And I'm not saying that these translations will be terrifically divergent from one another. Not at all. I mean, I've often picked up... So, for example, you know, Lydia Davis has translated Proust. She's translated Swan's Way and she's called it The Way of Swan. 
and she says that my attempt is not to make the French English, but to make sure that the reader understands that there's a different language underneath, even if the words are English. To be honest, when I read the two translations, I can see the difference, but they're not so far apart for me that makes me think, oh, wow, this one is uh, anglicized and this one is not. But then you realize that it lies in some details here and there. So the divergences are not enormous, but in the translator's head, somewhere the strategies are different. Um, so it's, as I said, it's not about beauty. I mean, it has, the translation has to be as beautiful as the original. That goes without saying. And indeed, making it as beautiful as the original is part of the process of being faithful. You can't change the pulchritude quotient, so to speak, and still claim that you're true to the original, just because you're trying to maybe take across the meanings of the words and the meanings of the words in a very limited sense. Because what is a word? What is a sentence? It is not just its dictionary equivalent. It is a rhythm. It is a sound. It is music. It is silence. What is the writer not saying in the sentence? You must make sure you don't give voice to what the writer has not given voice to. You must hear the silence and protect the silence. So it's a whole bunch of things. And really what you are faithful to as a translator is your reading of that text. Translator is the closest reader there can be of any text. I think even closer than the writer themselves. So a couple of thoughts that yeah. sort of emerged from yeah. what you just yeah. said. One is when you're talking about uh, Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak's mm. translation of Mahashweta Devi mm. and her being faithful to what she felt was the academic mm. aspects of it, mm. even though you said Mahashweta Devi may not have intended mm. those aspects. So now this brings up the question of uh, should we think of the text as something that stands apart from the author and the author's possible intention? For example, Ralph Mannheim said something which uh, was quite interesting to me, where he said, quote, translators are like actors who speak the lines as the author would if the author could speak English. Uh, stop quote. So, you know, so when you're translating, is that something at the back of your mind that what is the author's voice? How closely can you replicate that in a separate language? How closely can you replicate the intention? Or are you saying that this is the work, this is what the work means to me and that's what I have to get across and keep the author out of the mm. equation? No, no, sorry. I think I, I didn't put that well. I don't mean at all that this is, I am trying to take across what the work means to me, leaving the author out of the equation. Not at all. And in fact, I don't believe that the translator should be interpreting the work in any way. But what I'm getting at is that the translator still reads it and, you know, hears the text and hears a voice. Now, the point is, I will be true to the voice that I'm hearing. Is that the voice that the author intended? I do not know. There is actually no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. Right? But yeah, I, to the extent that I am intent on taking across the author's voice the way I hear it, it is very much the author's work that I'm taking across. But the interesting thing is that none of this is a deconstructed process. It's not as though you have to break it down into components, okay, voice, sound, rhythm, da-da-da, none of that. It's all fused in the text. And really, if you are led by the text, and if you're a good translator, then all of these things will automatically be carried through. So you don't have to worry about these things individually. When translating, you have to worry about whether, after you've translated, whether when you're reading it, you're getting the same kind of feeling as when you read the original. That's important. You know, it's important to read it to yourself, read it out loud, uh, go back to your memory of the original text and see if you're getting the same notion, if you're being carried along the same way, if you're stop pausing at the right place, if you're laughing at the same spot, if you're crying at the same spots or not. These are important. And some... Uh, it, it, 
so this business of the effect you're trying to create in the reader now some language for example english is not as effervescent a language as bangla bangla can pile on metaphors one after the other and it does not even seem very weird try doing that in english i mean try translating tagore literally into english and it will seem the most over the top text ever as you can see when you read his own translations they're weird right i mean no wonder he attracted Uh, labels of being a mystic and so on the original texts are anything but mystical but once taken into english because of the strange strange images that are created which are not you know they don't flow naturally from the english language you end up with a very different notion of the text even if the words are the same so that is where you know your judgment has to come in so you have to actually when you're putting it into english you have to actually temper it down because um, you want ultimately to achieve a similar effect you know debra smith who translated uh, the vegetarian from korean um she was uh, there was a huge storm of criticism of her work from korea when they said that oh there are many she's completely changed the tone because korean is a much you know it's it's like east many languages from asia it operates at a much more metaphorical level it has a higher pitch and so on and english she is sort of tamped it down my point is that if you try to you know maintain that same pitch in english it would be hysterical so you actually do have to tamp it down so these are the points where you know it's like the author is speaking out in the street and you hear him in the backdrop of all the other noises and then suddenly you, you know you're translating him and you're putting him in a soundproof studio you have to lower his volume otherwise he's going to sound abnormally loud this has always actually seemed you know one of the things i wonder about that languages are so fundamentally different that are they translatable at all for example i was reading this uh, excellent book by guy dosher called through the language glass mm. and there was a paragraph that struck me in that quote there are four tongues worthy of the world's use says the talmud greek for song latin for war syriac for lamentation and hebrew for ordinary speech and later he writes uh, the holy roman emperor charles v king of spain archduke of austria and master of several european tongues professed to speaking and now quote within the quote spanish to god italian to women french to men and german to my horse stop quote twice so, and uh, you know it's it's always struck me that for example uh my specific bias my specific taste in literature is towards minimal spare prose which is why you know i like someone like hemingway mm-hmm. but which is also why i like a lot of japanese fiction mm-hmm. and one reason that i have speculated on why this might be so is that japanese is just a more minimal language is mm-hmm. less flowery it's less whatever even more so than english in a sense yeah. and equally languages like urdu and bengali mm-hmm. are almost baroque languages That's there right. is so yeah. much expression yeah. and like you said that if you were to translate something literally from either urdu yeah. or uh, uh, bangla to english it would just seem overblown you yeah, know the, the finest tagore poem beautifully mm. translated mm. and i've tried mm. it myself mm. and if you just stay faithful to each of the words and you translate them it just sounds bad because of val- the aesthetic values inherent in the english language are very different exactly so how much of a problem for you was this at sort of conscious level and my other sort of related mm. question goes back to what you were earlier mm. saying about strategy and mm. tactics mm. where i was reading an interview of rabasa mm. and rabasa was asked the same question about strategy and tactics mm. and he said i have no strategy it's only tactics mm. and perhaps there is a strategy he's internalized mm. in his processes or whatever i'm guessing yeah, yeah. but he said it's only tactics i just go you know one yeah, sentence at yeah, a time yeah, and so on yeah. so 
how do you resolve that like you interestingly said that you do have a strategy when you get down to so what's this distinction between strategy yeah. and tactics so and strategy i mean when i say i have a strategy i would say that i have an objective um and it is internalized it is not that it varies from text to text it is a it is almost a philosophy of translation or my philosophy of translation if you like um which as i keep saying is about um being faithful to the sum total of the text and the world it creates as it is perceived by a reader and uh, my attempt is to read it like a universal reader or like a reader uh, of without any particular objective in mind a reader has no objective in reading the reader is just reading so every reader as it were so my objective is to read it like every reader and then make sure that the translation can be read by every reader with a essentially the same kind of feelings and notions and what they absorb and so on about it as opposed to let's say i will be true to um making sure that every word is taken across or every every metaphor is taken across and so on now this does not mean that you play with the text or you you're reckless with it it just means that then it comes down to specific tactics at a sentence level at a word level where you do what you think is best keeping this overall overarching objective in mind so sometimes an idiom will render itself beautifully in another language there is no need to then say i will not do it at other time it's absurd and you say i will not do it a third time it's absurd and you say i will do it because it's so picturesque and it draws up such a fantastic image that i don't want to sacrifice it even if it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily so that's tactics right and then ultimately it's also not you don't see it in isolation you see where it stands in the scheme of the sentence the paragraph when you're reading it afterwards is it jumping out at you like a sort of because that that's something that i am completely against you know these um, islands of brilliance in a text are avoidable as long as they're not there in the original and that also brings me to the point you have to keep the flaws as well hmm. you cannot paper over the flaws if you see something as being clunky writing and remember that bangla literature was never edited only now is there a sort of semblance of editing but nothing there's no structural edits nothing and often often i guess it would have been written at great speed that's for these right. magazines yeah. and all of yeah, that that's right mm-hmm. so in fact it's a wonder that uh, our and it's not just bangla all indian languages it's a wonder how good these literatures are despite the fact that there is no editing and if you're mischievous you can always say it's because there is no editing but that's not yeah. I, i mean i don't entirely agree with that but yeah so therefore lot of flaws i mean i would have edited tagore i would have edited the hell out of tagore if i were his editor in bangla but um, you know so then you when you're translating you have to keep some of those not some all if you perceive weaknesses you have to keep them if you see clunkiness you have to keep it so are you deliberately recreating that clunkiness into english absolutely if it's there in the bangla absolutely and then the editor will say can we change this and i said no we can't because it's not in my control <laughs> this is what the writer wrote i can't help it hmm and let him let the writer be read for you know their words as well why should they be read only for what's great so yeah no and going back to uh, you know something that emily wilson wrote and mm. emily wilson wrote this in the context of seneca but it brought your bengali translations to my mind when i read it first uh, where she writes uh, on translating seneca quote i had a hard time figuring out how much i could get away with pulling out all the stops rhetorically because he writes in this wonderfully ornate purple style it's showing off showing off showing off bombast the risk is always that is going to come across as too silly to be impressive it has to go very close to sounding silly but without quite getting there 
stop code and and later she um, wrote a twitter thread which i'll reproduce in the show notes about all the uh, sort of the difficulties of translating uh, odyssey homer's odyssey, odyssey which she did recently one, yeah. and uh, part two of them might be very relevant to you where she said mm-hmm. that there aren't enough onomatopoeic words for very loud chaotic noises Absolutely. and bengali is full of these <laughs> full of like ye to jata bol shit to bar bar hoega lo ha ha kore chute lo ghar ta kha kha korche gaadi kore utlo and you know exactly even if you don't know the meaning you know exactly what how do you capture this flavor is it even possible or do you have to tactically decide to you know yeah i've i've started taking more risks now to be honest mm. originally i would say you know i'm not going to put in words and phrases that will make no sense to the reader but now i've started trying sometimes give me an example so you know if it's got a really kore utlo which is mm. basically that i was extremely annoyed and irritated mm-hmm. and so on so i might actually say that you know and you know and then a really really an annoyed wave ran through his through her body or something like that you know but actually find a way to suggest that this is how it is used in the original language and sometimes you know the reason i also do it i'm saying that if the language does not have this maybe it deserves to have it yeah, you know yeah. so why not introduce because we have done that right the, english any language grows by uh, bring taking in terms for which no terms exist in its own and because we are now living in an increasingly globalized world you don't have a choice but to represent many things which are not part inherently part of your of the culture from which your language came so what do you do then you i mean we do it in india all the time we are forever borrowing english words so why not the other way around No, and in fact, translation in a sense has also been described. I forget by who has also been described as a dialogue between languages. Yes, and is that something you felt acutely while? Yeah, yeah. The good thing, the perhaps the best thing about all of this discourse, is that you can happily get into it after the translation is done. It does not have to actually intrude on the act of translating itself, because then you'd be up shit creek. You wouldn't be able to finish a line. if you kept put so much thought into of so much thought of this kind into it but yeah i'm eternally like i have this new theory now of, of literature of translation and so on which is that i know we keep saying the original language and then the target language and so on my theory is that there is no original language in which a work exists a work exists outside of language and it springs into being in each language at the time in which it is written so even if it so turns out that the bengali version was written first chronologically it does not mean that the english version is a version of the bengali version both the bengali and the english are versions of that pure thing which exists up there which the writer pulled out of their own head and everything and put into words in a particular linguistic system they could just as well have done it in another linguistic system depending on which one they were familiar with and that therefore the work does not spring up only in that one particular language it can exist in all languages this is one of those clever uh, you know things so this, this uh, reminds me of something octavio paz yeah. once said yeah. where he said quote when we learn to speak we are learning to translate yeah. stop quote which is yeah, exactly what and you just said that's the thing yeah but i'm saying that this is a slightly clever thing because i also equally will argue for the fact that you cannot actually divorce the content of a text from the language the language determines the content even you know because certain things you cannot put it in that language they're not in the text i agree with that yeah, yeah. Uh, and therefore some books cannot be written in some languages if because there's things that need to go into that book perhaps cannot be put into english so you have to write it in hindi or bangla or do so you know and i'm saying that these are theories and theories don't necessarily have to map on to any kind of reality a theory is after all what it is a way of uh, examining a phenomenon 
and seeing what patterns you can discern in it. That does not mean that alternative theories cannot do an equally good job of discerning patterns or explaining it. And perhaps the beauty of it is that you don't eventually need, it's not science. So you don't need one all-encompassing theory to explain it because the purpose of that theory is to then also predict that if this is the input, this will always be the output. And essentially, literature and trans art and translation are not about same input producing same output. If that were the case, then every translation would be the same. It's not. So someone is mediating. Someone is mediating with who knows what kind of un agendas that even they don't know. As a translator, I'm sure there are things going on in my in my subconscious and unconscious that I'm not aware of. As a translator, I know I've evolved. Every translator evolves. So the way you translate a text, if I were to go back and translate the text that I translated 10 years ago, I am certain they would be different. No, and what I also find fascinating is that while you are someone who now teaches uh, writing, who teaches uh, literature, who teaches mm -hmm. translation, you mm -hmm. were first a practitioner. Yes. The theorizing has come later. The theorizing has come later, but I don't teach translation theory. Okay. I just, um, I mean, these questions come up in the course of actually uh, performing translations. So then we answer them and then sometimes we get carried away and start constructing theories because it's fun to do and interesting things to discuss and write about. To be honest, I see translation theory as a very valuable but distinct space from uh, the practice of translation, the praxis of translation. Excuse <laughs> me. Yes. On that note, we'll take a quick commercial break and we'll come back in a minute. Yeah. If you're listening to The Seen and the Unseen, it means you like listening to audio and you're thirsty for knowledge. That being the case, I'd urge you to check out Storytel, the sponsors of this episode. Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world. Their international collection is stellar, but so is a local collection. They have a fantastic range of Marathi and Hindi audiobooks. What's more, I do a weekly podcast there called The Book Club with Amit Varma, in which I talk about one book every week, giving context, giving you a taste of it, and so on. Download that app and listen to my show. And as long as Storytel sponsors this show within this commercial itself, I will recommend an audiobook that I liked on that platform every week. My recommendation for this week is Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. For Indians of a certain age, Agatha Christie's books are comfort food and her genial detective, Hercule Poirot, is an old friend. And Murder on the Orient Express is one of Christie's finest and Poirot's finest. So do check it out on Storytel. Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Download the Storytel app or visit Storytel.com. Remember that Storytel with a single L. Storytel.com Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm chatting with Arun Avasena on the art of uh, translation. And so far we've spent a chunk of time talking about uh, the theory of it just before we uh, sort of got back just before we went to the break. So, you know, another thing that strikes me, and this is something that other translators across the world have pointed out, is of English sort of being a bridge language between languages. Mm -hmm. That very often, English is the first language that something will be translated mm -hmm. into. And quite often, it will become the source of translation uh, for further languages. Mm -hmm. So, for example, language one is translated into mm -hmm. English, and then language one is further translated into language two via the English translation. So English almost has a sort of a central role. And this is, of course, in the context of world literature. But even in the context of mm -hmm. India, you know, English is sort of where, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, there's a whole publishing industry in English. 
how has the ecosystem there evolved in terms of uh, languages getting translated into english into each other what is the importance of english in spreading popularizing our literature in other languages so if you mean around the world outside of india that too but yeah, also yeah, hmm. yeah so outside of india it is of course crucial because this is it's the language that your most translators working into so it's much harder to find translators who will translate let's say a bangla text into french or german or spanish right there'll be one or two or three people so there only so many text they can do so english automatically becomes the receptacle as it were of the translations and then because as you said it is the language that lubricates global publishing so people will read the english version and then maybe decide to publish it in another language and more often than not they might well use the english edition as the source because they don't have translators working between the original first and the new languages it's not the best situation but to my mind it's better than no situation i mean i always feel that any translation is better than no translation so we have to lump it even if we don't like it in india it's the same and even worse in some ways because uh, people who now are genuinely biliterate in two non english languages from india are very hard to find you had a whole bunch of them earlier for one thing you know there were when people there were large scale migrations in india of people from particular communities into other spaces and who then had to perforce learn the local language so very interestingly a legacy of that is one of the best translators working from bangla into english is actually a tamil His name is Ramakrishnan. Okay. Yeah, but you wouldn't know that except for the fact that his name is Ramakrishnan, and he, his Bangla is fantastic. And I dare say he could translate into Tamil if his Tamil was good enough. But people like that are almost impossible to find. Uh, no one picks up the another language anymore. At best, you have to learn it to be able to go into translation, and then nobody is interested in going into translation. Uh, you know, between Indian languages. So, perforce, we are moving to a situation where English will become the fulcrum and from there you know the arms will poke out in different directions it's good and i feel it's better than nothing because at least uh, there are so many good literatures in india and such fantastic books being written in at least a dozen languages that it would be a shame if they could not be read by people who read uh, other languages and don't want to read them in english or do not read english and even an imperfect translation if it conveys some of what is good about the original can spur the reader to look for more and absolutely. maybe do the work herself absolutely absolutely that's what i'm saying uh, a bad translation is better than no translation quite honestly if the original work is really good and also does you know given that language affects thinking like one would you agree that language affects thinking as uh, orwell keeps saying and two would you then say that our thinking can become homogenous and englishified if that becomes sort of the universal language of use now i don't know if i'll be uh, sort of able to express it well but for example one question i half seriously sometimes pose to people is that do hindi speakers think differently because there isn't a semicolon in the language you know if that makes any yeah, kind of yeah. sense so i know what you mean but the i think the way i see it is that those of us who are born in india actually have the unique privilege of being able to code switch fairly at least those who also use english are able to code switch at their convenience and therefore they switch to the language that best accommodates their thoughts so i don't think no matter how much english spreads our thought is limited by Uh, what english can or cannot do we very happily use languages uh, words from our own language and from other languages across india for that matter and then we sort of show on them into the english quite seamlessly to the extent that if you hear the way english is now 
spoken, for example, across streets, it's quite different. In fact, um, you know, to me, the best example of the way the un- English is used unselfconsciously with massive borrowings from Indian words is pornography. Mm. If you read in English pornography written in India, you will find that obviously there is no attempt at any pristine literary values. So therefore, the word that best suits the situation is used no matter which language it belongs to. While the fluid is primarily English, but it's mixed with all kinds of things. It's also interesting that even English is misused in the sense, for example, that instead of lay, the uh, lay as in lie down, it will always be, the word in English will often be sleep. Mm. So it will be... Uh, a man will often say, write something like, I slept on her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you see where it's coming from. It's very interesting that the thought originates in another language and there is a, a sort of futile attempt to translate it into the English equivalent, uh, literally, so that you end up with a rather comic kind of image if you want to. But it is fearless. The way the language is treated in pornography is absolutely fearless. And because I dare say there is a range of activities and impulses that you are trying to portray, you cannot be sort of, you know, cowed down by the by the limitations of your medium. So in the same way, I think um, the English that I hear is a brilliant uh, combination of of the best of many different languages and what you just said like from the limited in the limited erotica that i have read indian erotica in english that i have read that category i've never noticed any such thing so which kind of makes me wonder that because you are looking at language so carefully being a mm-hmm. translator mm-hmm. do you also notice all of these things quite possibly i think that's entirely right and you know it can be an annoyance sometimes because you're both marveling and being annoyed by what you're reading, no matter what. So when I read English, for example, I'm always thinking, oh man, this sentence is so good and why can't I translate a sentence as good? Whether I'm read, whether what I'm reading is a translation or not. And when I'm reading Bangla, I keep thinking, oh no, so what if I had to translate this? Would I ever be able to do it? Or, ah, what a lousy sentence, you know, how am I going to put any kind of value into this sentence? So it's annoying. It's It's like a meta... Uh, commentary that is always running through your head. No, and and just like thinking aloud, like I I deplore language Nazis because as far as I'm concerned, language evolves. New words come in all the time. For example, people frown on the use of the Indian English neologism prepone. But I think prepone is a great word. It's a very elegant word for the use. It's a very economical word. Yeah, it's a very nice word. Why would you say it longer? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And it's obvious what it means. And because of the sheer population of English speakers in India. Exactly. Is it then possible that the future of the English language will be driven by all the contortions which we carry out with the, like sleeping on? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in India it will. I don't think it will spread across the world. I mean, for example, here in India, we have no idea of the the African flavors of English Mm. or the Caribbean flavors of English. And yet those are very, very distinct in those spaces. In fact, William Carlos Williams once said that I don't write in English, I write in the American idiom, which obviously also creates then a additional problems for translators. Now, you've also sort of, 
you've translated writers from like Bonkim mm-hmm. who are uh, much older you're translating people like uh, Nobarun and obviously the idioms that they are writing in the times that they have inhabited mm-hmm. the slang and the language they use is very very different mm-hmm. so how do you sort of how how easy or hard is it to deal with something like that it's not easy i mean it's easier to deal with uh, modern and contemporary it's definitely harder to deal with classic texts so when you're translating someone like bankim mm. and a phrasing of his seems archaic in the original bengali will you then also attempt to reproduce that archaicness in the english i will tr- um, not in the way in which you might read it in say a victorian uh, novel or or in an arthur conan doyle uh, story no because i think that will not sit easily on me but i will try to bring out what we think of as archaic as a certain quaint elegance mm-hmm. and i think that is what i would aim for yeah so i might not use certain words which were very prevalent when you were writing in english in the 19th century because after all i you know the translation is being done in 2020 or whenever it is not being done 100 years ago and indeed if i read translations of those works done 100 years ago you can see that they use what is contemporary english but see there's this other factor there which is this that bunkim take um, the first novel that he wrote in bangla durgeshnandini which i have translated he was 26 bunkim chandra chattopadhyay is 26 at the time 26 okay that's it he is he has written an english novel which has bombed so to speak and he himself is unsure of his ideological moorings in having made that choice so he writes this tremendously racy romance it's in the walter uh, scott mold right it's racy it's full of um, i mean it's everything that you would want to read in a historical romance but he is writing it for a contemporary audience although he is setting it in his past he is setting it several hundred years ago from the time he lives in but he is still writing it in a contemporary idiom now that contemporary idiom a hundred years later appears very archaic but am i being true to that text if i were to use a very archaic uh, mode for it because a 26 year old writing for a contemporary audience should i not try to create something of that effect not by being faddish because those terms will come today and go tomorrow but in keeping some sense of modernity about it and so you aim therefore for a more timeless kind of approach you know which where your idioms are not rooted in a particular space or time or anything but you try to bring out the notion that it should be read without the degree of difficulty that we now encounter in reading the bangla and that's a very interesting question always and an interesting theoretical question if you're looking at an older text which is that should you reproduce the reader's response as it was when the text came out or should you reproduce the reader's response now if they were to read the original text and to me frankly reading bunkim chandra original in bangla is like reading it in translation not reading a foreign language in many ways i mean the words may be familiar or not even but the structures the whole flow are clearly from another era and you know like they say the past is a foreign country so <laughs> it is no no different from you know when we say that this work is in bangla just because it uses the bangla script and certain familiar words we are actually papering over huge differences in register huge enormous so you know these are things to be factored in for sure and and how does it uh, and especially with the contemporary guys how do you deal with 
डायलॉग फॉर एग्जाम्पल इडिथ ग्रॉसमैन राइट्स अबाउट डायलॉग कोट डायलॉग कंटेन्स ऑफन नुआंस समटाइम्स इग्रीजियस इंडिकेशन ऑफ द क्लास स्टेटस एंड एजुकेशन ऑफ द कैरेक्टर्स नॉट टू मैंशन द इंटेलिजेंस एंड इमोशनल स्टेट सिग्निफिकेंट इंटेंशन एंड सोनॉरिटीज अबाउंड इन द नरेशन एंड इन द डिस्क्रिप्टिव पोर्शन ऑफ द वर्क दे मे बी एलिमेंट्स ऑफ आयरनी और सेटायर द रिदम ऑफ द प्रोज लॉन्ग फ्लोइंग पीरियड्स और शॉर्ट क्रिस्प फ्रेजेस एंड द टोन ऑफ द राइटिंग कलोकियलिज्मज एलिवेटेड डिक्शन पंपॉसिटी स्लैंग एलिगेंस सबस्टैंडर्ड यूज अ पिविटल स्टाइलिस्टिक डिवाइसिस एंड इट इज इनकम्बेंट अपॉन द ट्रांसलेटर टू एप्रीहेंड द वेज इन विच दीज इंस्ट्रूमेंटैलिटीज फर्दर द पर्पसिस ऑफ द फिक्शन द रेवल्यूशन ऑफ कैरेक्टर द प्रोग्रेस ऑफ द एक्शन स्टॉप कोट एंड हेयर इट स्ट्राइक्स मी दैट यू नो वेन इट कम्स टू अ नॉवेल इट सेल्फ यू नो आई गेस यू गो थ्रू दैट original moment of discovering what the voice is and then you can continue with the authorial voice for the whole of the book once you've sort of slipped into that voice but when it comes to the dialogue within a book where you have different people speaking in all of these different kinds of languages in some cases written by people perhaps much younger than you today in mm-hmm. settings you mm-hmm. haven't inhabited yourself mm-hmm. is that harder how do you get around it it is and it's not just that it's also for example and this is probably true of all languages in all indian languages as well which is that you have many dialects and many local variations and many authors are very good with reproducing the speech if you take an even an urban setting which is a confluence of people of different socio economic backgrounds then each one is speaking in a different register very clearly different vocabulary different ways pronunciation and so on and you cannot actually bring all of that into english for the simple reason that if you were to choose uh first of all your choice of english um dialects or versions of english would be purely random so i've actually read uh, translations where um a certain village dialect has been translated into a scottish version of english how does that even work because in fact on the contrary you are creating in the reader who identifies it as a scottish brogue a false sense of space it it's not correct at all so this is a very very difficult situation especially when there's a clash let's say when people are speaking the same dialect then it's not such a problem because they are perfectly intelligible to each other so even if you were to put them in standard english it would not matter the problem is when so you know classic thing is that the guy who drives your car is talking to you so you're speaking a kind of language which is very different from theirs and you have to translate this while maintaining the difference in register so it get stuff and i would say that you don't always succeed you try to do it with the words you use and so on the other things that um, it grossman talks about you know rhythm um, music and so on those are are easier to or let me put it this way if you're sensitive if you can hear them then you can perhaps take them across into in fact you said in the past yeah. that you read out both the original yes. and your translation yes. of it to get a sense yes. so is it important to you that rhythmically and all that yes they... it's very important to me that is absolutely very important to me but there again you have problems for example in bangla um it's very natural to have short sentences in the same structure in english creates a tremendously staccato feeling sometimes in bangla you generate tension with short sentences in english you actually have to use a longer sentence to generate the same kind of tension so can you give me an example so in of this um, pulp writer named shopun kumar whose work i've translated so his his work starts and and this is almost a cliche and may not actually be there it's like one of those excellent said i elementary said he kind of things but it it goes like ghorite dhong dhong kore ekta bajlo and the big joke is if it's acta 1 o'clock then there should be only one 
chime should be heard only once. So what is this dong dong business and so on? Mm. <laughs> or he has things like you know, akate bonduk, akate cigarette, or akate boiniye uni duklen. So, and but no, but so other than that, so it's like govi rath, brishti poche. Rasta yak tau lok nahi. So you get the sense, right? No, it's, it's Now, in English. It's too in English, staccato. if you make that as, yeah, dead at night, it's raining, not a person. It does not create the same kind of, but here it's almost breathless the way it's described. So, you know, there you may have to combine them into a single sentence and find a way to keep it taut without using too many words. And sometimes you do that thing that many um, uh, English grammar Nazis hate, which is comma splicing, which does not exist in English, right? You're supposed to use a semicolon or <laughs> break it into two sentences. If we want it to exist, I mean, language evolves. So yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. If so people use it, it's no, fine. Now I find, in fact, I've been, uh, one of the things I do is read translations of uh, from European texts very closely to see if they're hmm. comma splicing or not. And I find that some do and some don't. So then I went back to the translators as it was the story. And some of them said, I hate comma splices, so I will not use it. And the other one says, no, no, the original has the rhythm, so I have to use it, even, oh, okay. even if I don't do it in my own writing. So people do have their quirks as well, you know, which translators' quirks also flow into their work somehow. But yeah, so what she's talking about, the rhythm and music and sound, assonance, alliteration, these are still possible to manage. I mean, the most brilliant exponent of this, of course, is Anthea Bell in her translations of the Asterix comics. And very interestingly, her strategy, well, I, okay, let me not use the word strategy. Her method there was that she would ensure that there were as many puns on a page of the English translation as there were in the original French. My God. But not necessarily the same equivalent puns or not necessarily the same words being punned on. So if there was a pun in the panel, she would have a pun in the panel, but the pun might be on a different word altogether because English would adopt, uh, accept that pun and not the first one. So these are things that you have to do, but it's when people start speaking in different, for example, you know, when we read the Asterix comics, we have no sense of whether there's a different uh, register that, there's, I mean, Caesar sounds the same as as uh, Obelix, for example, yeah. right? The only difference might be in the choice of words or in the how sonorous Caesar is, whereas Obelix is much more um, crisp, uh, crisp or, or, or maybe excited mm. and aggrieved for not getting the magic potion. So th that's how you take it across. But you cannot actually convey the unstated information in used in the choice of dialect to the reader who understands and many readers will not even get nuances there. All they will know that, okay, this guy is not speaking standard Bangla. So therefore from a different section, but they can't locate which section or where and so on. For that, you need a tremendously more discerning ear. Um, so that information you're not always able to convey in your translation. And that's a problem perhaps in some cases. In other cases, it may not matter because even if you conveyed the information, it would not mean anything to the reader. So, you know, it seems to me that the most intense illustration of the difficulties of translating actually comes from poetry. Mm -hmm. Like Robert Frost controversially yeah. said that poetry is the thing that gets yeah. lost in translation. Yeah. And uh, I was reading John Felstiner's book, Translating Neruda, where he talks about that experience. Mm -hmm. And he writes, quote, bring over a poem's ideas and images and you will lose its manner. Imitate prosodic effects and you sacrifice this matter. Get the letter and you miss the spirit, which is everything in poetry. Or get the spirit and you miss the letter, which is everything in poetry. Yeah. But these are false dilemmas. Worse translation at its best generates a wholly new utterance in the second language. New yet equivalent of equal value. Stop quote. And uh, ha have you tried your hand at poetry? Yeah, yeah I've done poetry. 
I've done poetry, and it is true that uh, translating poetry is a whole different ball game. And indeed, if you keep this, that goes, and so on. And you may have to make some sacrifices, but equally, I agree that you are aiming to write poetry in the new language. And uh, I would actually say that translating poetry is a little bit like doing a cover version of a song. You know where uh, the artist's own voice and manner of singing will come through. A good cover version a will cover also be version. an original in it, a sense. Yeah, it will be an original. It will stick to the melody, but it will improvise, and it will very clearly be rendered in the artist's voice and not in an attempt to replicate. I mean, those cover like when you sing exactly like the original. Actually, the cover versions are pointless because you might as well listen to the original then, right? Yeah, I don't want to hear somebody sounding like the Beatles if they're going to do. So, the do you do you write original poetry yourself? No, no I don't. So, I, don't. I couldn't for the life of me. Because I've noticed that you know some of the translations from Indian languages of poetry in other languages is by great poets themselves, right. like Arvind Krishnamurthy, Dwin Kabir, right. and right. Ranjit Hoskote Lalde. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, it almost seems to me that to be able to translate, you have to be a poet yourself. Yeah, except that I agree. Except that I'm always worried about terms like, am I a poet or am I not? Because right. you know, you may be a poet without. Having written a line of poetry for that matter, I mean, you may have all the qualities that a poet has. Um, the thing is, poetry also eventually is a matter of appreciating the entire holistic effect of text, right? Including rhythm, including rhyme, including sound, melody. So, to that extent, poetry and prose are not that far apart. But it's just that because prose is more loosely, there's no structure in prose. I mean, just flowing sentences one after the other. Whereas poetry has a line length, it has prosody, it has certain structured effects as it were so those are harder harder to put across but very interestingly ranjit haskote's approach to translating is vastly different from arvind krishna mehrotas i mean arvind krishna mehrotas rewrites the poems yeah yeah you know he is actually that's a true cover version mm. i mean he brings rastafarians into kabir Hmm. Which is great, is wonderful to read. It's perhaps also only possible because there have been so many translations of Kabir. Yeah. So now you can start reading these. If yeah. he were to be the first translator, then Kabir would have an entirely different. They'd all jump on Arvind Krishna Mehrotha. Yeah. Also, like, what exactly. are you doing? Exactly. But here exactly. he's allowed yeah. to play around. Exactly. Whereas Ranjit Haskodi was doing Lal Dead has to be, but Ranjit brings a different. He's much more aware of the need to be to put less of himself. Maybe his skills, but not himself, not his sense. Possibilities as a poet, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and the other question I have, and this also, I'll probably phrase it in a clumsy way because uh, I'm almost thinking aloud, is that a lot of us who are educated in English, certainly me, we bring our biases to the table when we read anything. So I have a certain way of looking at a text. For example, when I look at poetry, you know, I will value things like economy. I'll value things like precision mm -hmm. of language. You know, I'll value things like what the specific rhythms that I'm used to thinking of as good poetry and so on and so forth. Ditto with prose. You know, I might have my own specific taste, but there's a certain sort of, um, even for people who haven't studied literature, just through the books that are considered great, there's a certain pedagogy of values mm -hmm. that the, this is what is good and mm -hmm. this is what mm -hmm. is not. Now, the languages, as we discussed earlier, are so incredibly different. You know, uh, uh, in Bengali, Tagore may write in very flowery, purple, vivid prose. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of subcontinental languages are certainly far more Baroque yeah. than English. And that's definitely not a value that you look for. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, you want to cut out all mm -hmm. of that. If any word stands out, we are taught mm -hmm. to cut it 
it out. Mm-hmm. You don't want the language to draw attention mm-hmm. to itself mm-hmm. per se. I mean, with exceptions such as, you know, magic realism mm-hmm. and whatever mm-hmm. Rushdie does. And, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not a huge fan of that, but that's mm-hmm. a question of taste. Yeah. So is how we, and here I'm not talking about translation per se, but is how we look at literature in languages other than English colored by the values that we have imbibed through studying or being exposed to English literature? I mean, is this a problem? And is it, for example, something that you would face in practical terms that say you're translating something from Bengali to English and it's beautiful in the original and you're recreating its essence in English and therefore it is not precisely how a writer in English would write it or consider good, but it still makes sense to you. How do you look at all of this? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think my personal aesthetic is also one towards one that abjures uh, excessiveness, excesses of any kind. So it's a hard balance. But at the same time, you can't also completely strip the original text of, of its decorations or ornaments and so on. But it's just that the way I look at it is that what is this place of those decorations and embellishments in the original language and sometimes when that becomes the norm then its effect is actually much lower because it is not standing out you're used to this sort of slightly exaggerated form right everyone is uh, as I said always. <laughs> no one will say <laughs> which is a more prosaic way of putting it so when you read encounter that all the time you are actually all you're hearing is nothing more than that so it's fine then you don't there's no embellishment that you need to carry across at other times you see genuinely wonderful prose someone has really come up with something fantastic and then you you then you sometimes you keep taking it into uh, the new language and see is it creating the same effect does it seem overblown or even under sometimes you may have not pitched it uh, high enough so you tweak um, but you have to be uh, sensitive to the natural tone of the language into which you are translating. And therefore, where a particular sentence stands with, in relation to the natural tone of that language is where your translated sentence should stand in relation to the natural tone of that language. And the two natural tones may be quite different. Therefore, you will have to choose. But the relationship between the natural tone and that sentence should be the same, more or less. That, that That's what I look at. You know, I was struck by uh, an example Rabasa gave of an exercise he carried out mm. in his class where, uh, and I don't remember the two languages involved, the mm. one of them was obviously English, the other would have been Spanish, mm. I guess. And uh, he handed out a text to one student who had to translate from Spanish to English. Next student had to translate that mm. translation back, back into, and yeah. so on all yeah. the way back yeah. to yeah. down the line. Yeah. And then they would look at the final English yeah. version with the first English version and yeah. sort of compare yeah, them. I've done that in my class as well. You've done that yeah. in your class yeah. as well. So, yeah. so, so what have you found? So, you know, the, the divergence is less than I had thought. Oh. Yeah. I had thought it would, it, like Chinese whispers, it would have been altered tremendously. Not quite so much. But you can see that individ- it's not so much the writing that's different as the reading that's different. So two people have read same word differently and therefore have written it in different ways or the same phrase differently. So really the divergences come in the way in your reading and in your reading comes your um, your relationship with the language as well. You know, in fact, this is another very interesting point, which is that in the West, most people translate from a language that they have learnt into their, into the language they live in, with English. In our case, 
we trans most of us translate from a language we live in and english also we live in in some senses in india but perhaps the english we live in is not the english we translate into entirely so because sometimes when you're translating into english you're always thinking of an international audience as well mm. so because of this difference we are perhaps better readers of the text than many western translators are but i dare say they may be better writers it's possible because they live their entire lives in english right we don't even despite our comfort and our familiarity with the english language many parts of our lives are not lived in english at all whether it's your daily transactions sometimes your thoughts your most instinctive responses to something are often not in english right so we end up translating i think in a different way which somehow i think is a little closer to the original text because we're reading it better and we're internalizing it more so the english that we reproduce it in will inevitably i think have more of the flavors of the original language like it or not than in the case of someone translating from say a french or a spanish into of course it, there's also the point that those languages are far more similar here english is comes from a completely different space if you were translating from hindi to bengali for example it would not nearly be such a as much of a leap no and in fact that you know so there i'm thinking for example an american writer who lives in calcutta and learns bengali mm. will come up with a, a very different kind of translation yes. as someone like you would who yes. uh, you know will find the sort of the familiar equivalent idiom in english much more yeah, much easier yeah and also also perhaps have a better sense of what that where the text is yeah. the original text is going yeah. beyond its dictionary beyond uh, its meaning and something you said was interested me which is you know when you said that we don't necessarily translate in the same english we use because it's also the question of international audience is that a consideration for you like when you translate are you thinking of audience or are you just thinking okay let me capture the joy that no, i it feel it is primarily mm. let me capture the joy that i feel but when i'm validating that joy mm. i have to figure <laughs> out whether it will register with the reader and that point you start thinking maybe not when the when you're actually translating but when you're reading revising you have to question your decisions to see someone who does not come armed with the same body of knowledge that you have what it will mean to them is some is a question you must ask. so so let's talk about your process now hmm. like w- w- what is your process like when you get a book like first i assume you will only translate books you enjoy reading is my guess or are you sometimes given a book and yeah, say hey, sometimes i do get commissioned books which mm-hmm. are not necessarily books i would translate by choice and i do it for various reasons because now increasingly i've discovered that this business of what i like is a little idiosyncratic because as a translator you also sort of have a responsibility towards the entire body of literature being produced in a language or all its in all its variations and diversity it is also important increasingly as we've learned that some voices need to be amplified are you saying that because there aren't too many translators from bengali to english allowed and around therefore the responsibility is more on you well no 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 i mean there are more translators actually from bengali to english than perhaps from any other language okay to be honest so, mm. no it's not more on me personally but i'm just saying on all of us mm. on all of us because fact is that we are not as many as there are writers yeah so although it takes a less time to perhaps translate than to write a book but the thing is that uh, you can't always go with only your personal taste 100% that's all i'm saying because then important books uh, which you may not like not all important books are books you may like but they need to be translated for let's say they come from an underrepresented voice or they increasingly for example i've i've tried to make i'm i mean over the past couple of years i'm trying to get to a point where i say for every book i translate by a man i will translate one by a woman also so i want to ensure that 50% representation in my ongoing work 
So sometimes, you know, one one picks up books that are important that you know need to be read without it being a book that you personally would enjoy. And does it expand you, uh, translating a book that you w- yes. wouldn't otherwise have liked? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes what I do is, um, so this is interesting. Very increasingly now, I don't read the book through before translating it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I read a little bit and then I get into it. And I discover the book as I'm going along. And while I can be cute and uh, sort of say things like it reproduces the first reaction of the reader when they're not familiar with the text and so on, the fact is that I enjoy it because I am actually discovering the story as I'm going along. So you read enough to get the voice and then you just... Yeah, 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 yeah. So so starting, in fact, that is where I put the most effort really in doing the first uh, few pages to make sure that I've got the voice. Once you feel you've got it, then I move very quickly because you're always worried. What if the voice leaves you at some point or do you allow yourself to be distracted by other things and then it's gone? That is, in fact, one of the toughest things because you also have to live at the same time. You're not just writing. For people like us, we also have to do our day jobs, whatever they might be. So you have to inhabit the book very, very um, uh, obsessively while you're translating it. I dare say that's true of a writer as well. They have to inhabit whatever they're writing. And is there, and again, this is true of everyone, writers, translators, anybody who does anything. Is there a trade-off between getting it right and getting it done? So do you sort of like if you have a particularly problematic passage or a para or a bit of dialogue and you're not sure what to do, do you just do it as best as you can literally and say, I'll come back to it later and move on? In the draft. Absolutely. I do not allow the flow to be impeded by anything. I mean, I very often leave entire chunks in the original without even translating because I know that that's going to engage a different part of my mind. And I don't want to suddenly change the rhythm of my writing at this point. So I do that. Yeah. Words, phrases, paragraphs. Sometimes I translate very literally knowing that I will come back to this, but the structure is so complex that I don't want to pause it right now. So, in fact, that's one of the tricks we do in our translation class. Sometimes when sentences prove very difficult to translate, we do an actual word-by-word rendition, which comes up quite beautifully as poetry almost. <laughs> because, you know, the syntax is mangled mm-hmm. in English. Give me an example if you can think of it. So, you know, if you take a long sentence like... Um, a lullaby, Gumparani Mashipishi Moderbadi Esho. Right. And you're trying, you're struggling with the rhythm of that in English. And you're trying to compose it entirely in your head before you put it down. And it's proving impossible. So then I tell the class, okay, let's just put down each word the way it is. So it's Gum, sleep, Parani, put, sleep, put, aunt. Uh, and as, as I go even more literal, mother's sister, father's sister, our house come. <laughs> okay. And then they've suddenly got a skeleton and then say, okay, now let's play with this and see what interesting things we can do. Just like a hack to release the it's mind. It's a hack. Yeah, it's a hack to release the mind. Exactly. So that you're not, because you're not struggling with structure and meaning at the same time. So you get the meaning out, literally word for word. So now you know what words you have to capture. Now you find the right structure for it that will. So these things happen sometimes, you know, and they're quite interesting exercises. And they sometimes alert you to the richness of that original text because what we tend to do when we read is that we abstract a meaning. And we tend to forget about other things, right? So that's why one of the exercises I do with my class is I make them translate birdsong. Wow. So the whole idea behind birdsong is that there's no meaning. You have to translate sounds. And let your minds just, you know, put words to these sounds. And then they create beautiful situations around those. Or I also make them translate from languages they, they don't know and I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, almost none of us knows uh, Norwegian or Swedish. So I take Swedish texts and say, translate. I say, what the hell is this? I don't care. 
just translate look at the text and do an english and then it opens unlocks different parts of their mind where they they try to from sounds or from from okay this is a short word it may be a verb and so on and they come up with something that is a cogent structure which may not have any relationship in terms of uh, significance with the original but it alerts you to the fact that there is so much more to text than its bare uh, dictionary meaning of each word so you know now i'll completely digress and ask yeah. about teaching yeah that you know how do you learn this pedagogy you know what do i teach how do i teach yeah. you know you you are basically before this you were a doer yeah. you know your strategy is internalized yeah. you are yeah. handling things yes. tactically yes. suddenly you have to teach a class and you've yeah. got all these interesting methods yes. so number one how do you devise these methods mm. and number two in this process does it change the way you see your translation or do your translation yeah great great question so um my first and this is something that i've only managed to i can articulate some of this now because i've thought about it again i've gone i'm an organic translator and i'm an organic teacher of translation so my idea of teaching translation is let's translate let's not talk about it and let's see what problems come up in the course of translation and let's address so i still follow that i just plunge people into it and as i was telling you i plunge people into it not just in terms of meaning but also both in terms of trying to capture all the richness of a text that exists outside of the dictionary meaning of the words and simultaneously also practice different forms of rendition for example one of the exercises i said them is we'll do let's do a feminist translation of a text where you're obviously allowed to play much more with the content but you are true to a certain vision you have of the end product so eventually you will marry the two where you will have a vision and you will have a sense of what the original text is but first let's do them as separate exercises without being hamstrung by the need to do both at the same time so yeah I, in fact my classes i i do two or three things for example one of the things i do is i hand out a sheet which is a combination of paragraphs of translated text and text written originally in english and i ask them to identify which ones do you think are wow. translations and which ones are not and can they possibly do that no even i couldn't yeah. the first time the exercise was given to me i couldn't either then the point of the exercise is just that that there is actually when you did the final thing you're not you there's no difference right so let's not worry about some you know the anxieties of a translated text a well translated text no one will be able to tell apart from an original so that's one exercise second exercise as i mentioned was things like birth song and so on the third exercise is that we translate we translate pictures uh, in over movie scenes into scripts so the whole idea is can you see something visually and put words to it if the words are not there for you to begin with wow that's so fascinating yeah mm. so then they do that so that ultimately teaches them to read the text also for the visuals that are out there without only worrying about sometimes you know you lose the side of the wood for the trees and as a translator you can't really do that or rather you have to do both you both have to go so down deep that you are looking only at the trees and even the wood but then the entire wood must also the forest must also be uh, coming alive to you at the end of what you've done in the same way that it was there in the original other than that uh, my job is really to teach them to fall in love how do you teach someone to fall in love you can't right but you can create the conditions for them to fall in you love. you recreate the joy which it seems to me that yeah. you are doing because i am now tempted to just go and see a movie scene and try to do this yeah. it's so yeah. exciting so yeah. that's the thing you recreate the conditions in which you will fall in love right you bring the chocolate and you bring the the lovely person and you put them in the right frame of mind 
But then you step back and say, okay, now if the magic has to happen, it will happen. That these are the primary tasks of my teaching. Once that is done, then it boils down to, as we said, you know, specific questions that keep cropping up in the course of the text. And I teach translation without knowing the languages from which they're translating. And my point to them is that I'm, this is not a mathematics class. We are not testing for accuracy. That is, as the translator, that's your responsibility. No one can teach you how to do an accurate translation. I mean, in this day and age, mm, it's not difficult at all. You will always get the meaning of every word. One of the translator's greatest tools today, by the way, and I'm very grateful for this, is Google Images. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, because sometimes you don't know what the hell is this word, but then you put it into Google uh, in the original language and you click on the Images tab and you say, oh, that's what it is. I had no idea. And wow. then you say, okay, now I figured out what it stands for. Yeah, so it's a huge, Google Trans uh, Images is a huge this is a fantastic hack. I just feel uh, yeah. so excited. I'm yeah, yeah. learning so much. So how long does it and how do you balance the sort of personal and the it's not even the professional because it's not your profession. How do you balance the uh, regular rhythm of your life, which includes everything else and the translation that you take on? And would it be different if translation was your day job? Yeah. So it is my profession in the sense that it may not be my profession financially, but in every other sense, it's my profession. It's the one that I give it's your calling. Of, it's your, yeah, it's, it's my almost my identity now, primary identity. Um, would it be different? Yes. Uh, the, my, I mean, I always often fantasize about that. Although I would not now not give not I would not give up teaching for anything. But I still fantasize um, about a life of being only a literary translator. So in that life, I would be. Um, so here's how my day would go. I would wake up in the morning and I would translate into Bangla first thing in the morning which I do now. I've translated one book and I'm going to be doing more. So first thing in the morning for about two hours when my mind is freshest after sleep, say from about six to eight, I would translate into Bangla. Then I would go for a walk, a long walk and have breakfast, then come back and then work on the main text that I'm translating for about four hours. So say till about um, one o'clock or so. Um, nap for 20 minutes, wake up and read read uh, English. What kind of Bengali naps for 20 minutes? No, I'm a bad Bengali in that sense. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So let's not call it a nap. I mean, hmm. let's say just, you know, shut my eyes for Relax. Like, yeah. Um, read for a couple of hours, then translate again, but a different text. So I would always be working on three texts. Wow. One into Bangla and one in the morning and one in the evening. And I'd knock off work by about eight o'clock or so and watch a film at night. That would be my... That's your fantasy. Yeah, right? fantasy. No socializing, mind you. I mean, this is almost... A yeah, that's what I was wondering. Why are you working till late? I thought you'll work till five in the yeah. evening. You chill out with your friends yeah. and all that. No, 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 no. I mean, friends and all that happens anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't deal with meeting people every day. Yeah, yeah. All the more reason I'm so grateful that you've <laughs> no, uh, come here is, today. This is different. Yeah. But, you know, socially, I mean, every day is out of the question. Fair enough. And, and so, so, you know, going back to the process, how long does it take you to uh, translate a typical book? So, depends on the length, of course. But mm. my I aim to translate 3,000 words a day. Wow, okay. In translation. So, if it's a middle, medium-sized book of about 60,000 words, it'll take me 20 days of 3,000 words each, which eventually, even inevitably becomes a month or so, because you don't achieve 3,000 words every day. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I average, let's say, 50 to 60,000 words a month. Let me put it wow, that way. Wow, that's fantastic. And did you also sort of, uh, like you mentioned that, 
your first translation when you were in college were mm. when you were working rather mm. that magazine was one of shankar's mm. stories and he liked it and mm. he asked you to mm. uh, uh, translate chorangi which you did so do you have a lot of interaction with the writers themselves what do they feel about the work fortunately no Hmm. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, because I'm sure it would benefit. I would uh, the work would benefit from these interactions. But see, here's the thing: most Bengali writers are not so able to read the English in a way that will tell them whether it's a good translation. I mean, they'll get a sense of it, but it won't go beyond that. Many of them are not interested. A third chunk are dead. So between them, I have had almost nobody look closely at a translation or so on. Once in a while, I've asked questions, but not too often. And and uh, in the general, like one of the uh, you know when I was reading interviews of uh, translators, uh, a really common complaint is that is about the reviews mm-hmm. that either the review won't even mention that uh, it is a translation or talk about the translation, or in some cases a reviewer will say, "Well, I don't know the original language, so I cannot comment." Which, according to Grossman, among others, is uh, an inadequate response because it's not about precision of translation; exactly. it's about whatever you're creating. And translators are often translators often feel that reviewers and many people in the general public as well don't really understand what they have done they think that is like you're putting a bit of tracing paper say on a painting and you're kind of but it's not that it's a it's an act of recreation and people don't often get this is that something you feel frustrated by that i i mean i know you won all these awards and uh, so on the crossword award for translation twice and so on but is that something that sort of frustrates you that um, uh, you know your translation doesn't get the kind of recognition it deserves perhaps you don't get the kind of advances you deserve so on and so forth no no it doesn't frustrate me it doesn't frustrate me at all because i really see the translator as being a transparent individual um they do their job but you know the the real i mean i'm happy if someone reads the book and says they liked it that that's good enough for me because then i know i've done a good job and that's all that matters whether they're saying you've done a good job or the review says it or so on is immaterial to me and really i think that too much i mean i know there are all these movements like name the translator and so on which are all good and so on but they distract i think in some ways they're not crucial to the quality of translations they're not crucial to be ensuring that more translations are read they're not crucial to ensuring that more translations are published none of those you know feed into those important thing i think that's what as the translator community should be fighting for certainly the money would be uh, useful but again how much money do writers make either that's true so to be honest I, you can't complain the trick for uh, if you live in india the trick for you is actually to try to get published in the west as a translator mm-hmm. because then the fees that you get are actually very handsome uh, certainly they're very handsome by indian standards but they're also pretty i mean i'll tell I'll, I'll tell you brass tacks it's very simple uh, in the uk you get paid uh, 90 pounds per 1000 words up a hundred words so uh no thousand words 50 so 50000 would give you of yeah that's right per thousand words so let's say if you were translating even a slim book of 50000 words you're talking about 4500 pounds 4500 pounds is almost 4 and a half lakh rupees hmm. right in india that goes a long way you certainly hmm. not going to get an advance of 4 and a half lakh rupees for a translation i mean the best advance you will get is maybe a lakh and hmm. that too if a publisher is trying to break into a market when they're already settled they will not pay that kind so of so many advance. young people are listening to this episode excited 
excited by everything you have said so far Till wanting now. to be translators and you've just brought them crashing down yeah well if you if you i i mean my point is that i don't think you can actually um be a great artist if you're yeah, driven by you have money. to do it for the love of yeah, it it's not going to happen and almost conversely if you the more you do it for the love of it the more money you'll make hmm yeah Uh, and the more happy you will be because you're not expecting anything to begin with. <laughs> But it is also, I think, you know, we also have locked ourselves into a kind of uh, consumer lifestyle, which perhaps if you're really serious about being a translator, you can. Today's generation is actually quite different in that sense. They're far more. Uh, they want to live far more lightly. So it it could be possible. I wouldn't make it. In fact, I know um, an Italian translated into Italian, Joya. Okay, I'll just call her Joya. Strangely Indian-sounding name. She's used to spend half a year in india because it was cheaper to live in india given what she was earning jag borzino yeah, so i yeah, have met yeah, her yeah yeah, yeah. fine lady yeah uh, yeah so you know i'm given everything you just said about not being social and all of that and you have translation to get back to i'm very grateful you gave me so much time i won't take much more of it final question uh, something that listeners of my show often ask me for and i think the part of the show that they enjoy the most is when uh, my guest is recommending books for them mm. to read mm. and in this case is particular Particularly pertinent because it's your whole life. Mm. So a dual question, really. One is that out of those who are translated, whom you've translated, and even otherwise, who are the writers you really, really love who mean something to you? And uh, apart from that, if you had to sort of recommend three works that you have translated that you're particularly uh, proud of, not mm. just as translations, mm. but you feel they are great books. You mm. feel everyone should read mm. this. Mm. You know, uh, what would they be? Okay. So as for the writers, are you talking about writers only who write in Bangla or? Uh, Let's stay with Bangla because other Bangla, guests yeah. will uh, we'll recommend other, other people. Other yeah. Mm. Sure. Yeah. So in Bangla, I think the people to really read are uh, Mahasheta Devi. Mm. For sure. Um, and and the brilliant thing about Mahasheta Devi is that I her work will remain act alive. I'm not going to use a word like relevant because that is that is too narrow. Her work will remain alive for many generations to come. So Mahasheta Devi, her son Nabarun Bhattacharya, who has whose writing has this manic energy which you would not think literature capable of actually holding, leave alone. Uh, was he particularly hard to translate? Or was he energizing? He was tremendously energizing, and in fact, there's been a newer translator a translation of that book by Shunandini Mukherjee at uh, Seagull, and hers is even better. It's not even; it's actually better than mine, because I think she's taken off where I left off, as it were. So you know, she's she's gone out more on a limb over there to reproduce that energy and that and that sense of manic adventure that that his text contains. So these two, for sure, I would recommend Asha Purna Devi because. she has this incredible ability to um locate her stories in within these four walls and home in on the aspects of human beings which we tend not to look at because we all tend to think of human beings as being very noble people right we are noble and we are always striving to be better versions of ourselves and so on and she just goes in at the pettiness and the weaknesses and the foibles and the way they create um, discord in in the tightness and the and the claustrophobic kind of spaces that middle class families live in it's fascinating and she is able to um, do i mean she has written over 
what I think two or three thousand stories. Great literature for me takes me to. This is something Nadim Aslam said, and I completely love what he said. He said it takes you to a place where you've never been before, and when you go there, you feel I've lived here all my life. Wow. Yeah. So that's exactly what she does. It's fantastic. So her definitely. Let's see who are the others. Uh, there, there are uh, writers like Shotinath Bhaduri. who used to live in you know many of the bengali writers who wrote in the first half of the 20th century actually lived and grew up in what is bihar now hmm. so shotinath baduri was one of them shotinath baduri has this fantastic book called dorai chorit manush which is as you can make out from the name a take off on the ramcharit manush hmm. and dorai is the name of the place hmm. it's an extraordinary book and it's been translated fortunately so him shondipan chattopadhyay who was one of those plotless uh writers who arrived at this fantastic vignettes of human behavior and always with the sense that you were looking at something deeper than you thought and in the most uh, amid squalor amidst amidst middle class meanness middle class poverty and so on and yet very strongly informed by human desire which was which is somewhat unusual for indian literatures you know where human desire doesn't play a very big part and desire in a in a very um um cheap tawdry way not even mm. particularly poetic or anything very real therefore anita agnihotri who writes from her own experiences as a bureaucrat and although she writes in bangla she her, her uh, fiction is set all over india i think you got the 2011 crossword award for yeah, translating yeah, her yeah, work yeah. yeah so her works are quite amazing and especially because they take you out of your known spaces and they um, actually sensitize you to politics to to social fault lines to poverty to living conditions and so on It always looks at those stories through what human beings are doing i mean they're not bland treatises he's not throwing data at you or anything like that so these people for sure and um, i would actually say um, tagore's short stories mm. they really are something i mean some of them are already part of the popular culture in such a way that yeah. it almost seems cliched like kabli yeah. wala yeah, for example exactly. but there are a whole bunch of others which are yeah you can there's so much you can get out of if you wanted to do a feminist reading of tagore stories for example um but written by so was he an ally the question is forget about whether he was a feminist was he an ally here's this very upper middle class very privileged person was he an ally or was it sort of pretense of understanding so there are very many important critical questions you can throw at his stories and you will always come back and you don't necessarily have to say the answer is not always yes but the point is he's engaging he's engaging with all these things and even if his viewpoint is not one you agree with you are grateful that he's engaging with it and is raising the questions back in that day back in that day in a, and framing them in a way that they the questions remain relevant now whatever your answers might mm. be he framed them in a tremendously modern or i would say out of time you know in a in a way that does not cannot be pinned down to a particular time or social system or anything in bangladesh there are these great writers and in fact that i can segue into the next uh, question for that i've finished the translation which is going to be published later this year of akhtaruz zaman elias's khwabnama which to me is the most mind blowing novel i've ever read tell me a bit about it khwabnama is set in just before and just after independence and partition it's set in a village cluster in the north of what is now bangladesh it is set at the I'm a background of the Tebaga movement so it's a confluence of many streams you have the Tebaga movement going on where farmers are agitating for their rights to the land they want to, in it to be Tebaga three parts and they want two thirds of the 
takings it's you have the whole uh, independence or rather the partition track so you have therefore the hindu muslim track you have oppression you have uh, personal desire you have magical realism because things are happening that cannot quite be explained you have hunger in a very big way food and hunger is such an important part of that book um and there is this one character who doesn't have a name he's called uh, tamiz's father tamizer bap and tamizer bap is perpetually hungry and he can put away enormous quantities of food and he becomes a mythical figure eventually and it is written in um, you know it's written in in a way that is uh, you almost feel uh, like no how can a person have so many perspectives in the same novel well and it is not conscious it's not that he's telling this story through xzi or yzi or zzi or anything but he just uh, he seamlessly you know shifts his the camera seem, seamlessly shifts his position and um, it's it's an extraordinary work so both in literary terms and in terms of being a document of of so akhtarul zaman elias wrote just two novels in his life he wrote this one and his second novel his first novel was called chile kota shepai the the soldier in the attic and he developed cancer while he was writing his second novel and he died soon after finishing and it's almost like he willed himself to finish the novel before he died and he wrote a bunch of short stories have you translated it. that one also no but i may i mean there is another mm-hmm. translator from bangladesh who's very keen but he says he doesn't have the time and if it turns out that he doesn't have the time then i'm going to do it otherwise he will do it any other translations of yours you'd like to recommend uh, what are your favorite sentimental favorites well sentimental favorite would be buddhadev bosu's uh, when the time is right mm. it's just an extraordinary piece of writing it's not so much the story or anything it's an extraordinary piece of writing but it is a very real it's set in again uh, just before independence it's set at a time when the old order of the bengali aristocracy is crumbling and there's lots of money because of the war and a newer bunch of bengalis are rising and yet they are associated by the aristocracy with being crude and money is after all vulgar and so on. so there's this very interesting clash between these two world views but told beautifully through the story of one family one family with a gentleman whose wife dies after giving birth to their fifth daughter so there are five sisters in this story but only one of them is pivotal the youngest one it's a love story as well but i'm most interested in the third part of the novel which is almost half of the novel which is a description of one night not even one night of four or five hours of a wedding and it's this grand wedding that is taking place under the specter of the japanese about to bomb calcutta or fears that they might bomb calcutta and it's almost the last fling of the old aristocracy before they know that they will be eclipsed and the sto- the writing is like a camera moving in and out of rooms and it moves between i mean you know it, it goes up to a two people who are having a conversation halfway through a sentence i don't want to hear anymore it moves on and catches the second half of a sentence somebody else is uttering somewhere and so in this way it sort of you know restlessly circulating around the whole space and making you see and listen to what's going on so it's like a plotless film almost in words quite remarkable Well, wow, yeah. I can't wait to read all these books. Yeah, and I will make sure I get these books across to you. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm going yeah. to pick them up. Please yeah. don't get them across to me. Let the royalties go where they should. You know, thank you so much. This has been such an enriching uh, discussion for me. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Amit. I mean, I don't think I've had a better chat on translating ever. Thank you.
If you enjoyed listening to this episode, do head on over to Amazon and just search for Runawa's name. A whole bunch of magnificent books will uh, pop up, including uh, the ones he just named. You can follow him on Twitter at Arunawa. Uh, that's just his name. You can follow me on Twitter at Amit Varma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can browse past episodes of The Scene and the Unseen at sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com. The Scene and the Unseen is supported by the Takshashila Institution. Do check out more about the public policy courses at takshashila.org.in. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of The Scene and the Unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to sceneunseen.in/support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.